Today's episode is brought to you by Normal Now, a campaign powered by Electrify America. Because some people think electric cars are just a weird new trend, but the truth is, they're normal now. Sarita Norridge remembers the first time she ever thought, I could work at Disney World. So I grew up in a very small one traffic light stop town in Eastern Connecticut. I really love the idea of working in a theme park. It sounds uh, crazy, but uh, when I, I was in college, I actually worked for a Six Flags park. So I kind of got a, dipped my toe in a little bit, knowing this next step was going to be, you know, coming to Orlando. One summer during college, Sarita moved to Orlando for a Disney World internship. And after graduating, she landed a full-time job as a cast member, or CM. It was her title, even though she mostly worked in an office. Each individual person that works for the Walt Disney Company is a star in the show, putting on the show for the guests and creating the magic. That magic came to a halt earlier this year when COVID-19 forced Disney World to close in March. In April, Disney furloughed 43,000 theme park workers, including Sarita. Eventually, the park reopened and Sarita was brought back. She was grateful to be working again when millions of people were still unemployed. And she was really busy. I was back at work from being on furlough for two and a half months and I was, you know, more busier than ever because I was covering for the other individuals um, who were still on furloughs. But all of that changed last week. We begin with breaking news, a sad day for workers at the happiest place on earth. Dizzy is laying off 28,000 domestic employees. The head of the parks division blamed the layoffs on the lingering financial hit of COVID-19. It's just the fact we're all still processing it because it, it's so sudden. People just like me will uproot their life wherever they are around the U.S. and move to Central Florida to work for the theme park. So it, that's why it was so emotional, I think, is because we truly gave up a lot of things back home to pursue this dream down here. Welcome to Skim This. New jobs numbers are telling us that half of the jobs lost at the start of the pandemic are back. But where does that leave us? Because from Disney World to American Airlines and from malls to restaurants around the country, the reality that things aren't about to return to normal is setting in. Mass layoffs are resuming months after we thought the worst economic effects of COVID were over, leaving people like Sarita out of work and in industries that could be forever changed. This week, we'll look at which jobs have come back, which haven't, and what to expect on the road to recovery. But before that, we're going to talk about how to guarantee your mail-in ballot gets counted, and the latest on President Trump's health. It's been one week since President Trump announced that he and the First Lady had tested positive for COVID-19. And since then, a lot has happened. So we want to give you a few key updates on where things stand now. First, the president's health. Last Friday, Trump was admitted to Walter Reed Hospital, where he spent three days. While there, doctors gave him a few different treatments to help his recovery, including steroids, oxygen, and an unproven antibody treatment. But then on Monday, he checked himself out and returned to the White House. 
I got back a day ago from Walter Reed Medical Center and didn't have to. I could have stayed at the White House, but the doctor said, because you're president, let's do it. I said, fine. Since returning to the White House, Trump's doctor says the president hasn't shown any COVID symptoms since Tuesday. And on Thursday, the same doctor announced Trump had finished his COVID treatment and was clear to start holding public events again by Saturday. But these statements have health and national security experts calling on the president's doctors to provide more specifics about his condition and exactly when he got sick, arguing that transparency, not just rosy statements, are critical right now, so people can have faith that things are under control. And that's especially true since the CDC has been telling Americans to isolate for a minimum of 10 days after they first experience COVID symptoms. And Trump would be back holding events several days before that. Well, so far, Trump's been sticking to positivity, and he's credited one drug with being the key to his recovery. I went in, I wasn't feeling so hot, and within a very short period of time, they gave me Regeneron, and it was like unbelievable. I felt good immediately. But here's the thing. The treatment in question, made by the company Regeneron, hasn't actually been approved to treat COVID-19 by the FDA. Regeneron has asked the FDA for emergency approval of its drug. But the science is still out on whether or not this drug is the cure the president claims it is. Regardless, the president says he'll make the drug available to hundreds of thousands of Americans for free, though he hasn't said how he plans to do that. And while the president says he's feeling better, over a dozen other people within Trump's circle have also tested positive for COVID-19, including former White House counselor Kellyanne Conway, advisor Stephen Miller, White House press secretary Kayleigh McEnany, two Republican senators, and former New Jersey governor Chris Christie. And a lot of those people were at the same White House event two weeks ago, Judge Amy Coney Barrett's nomination ceremony, which is now being called a potential super spreader event. This health scare has brought renewed scrutiny on one thing in particular, the role of the vice president. That's because whoever wins in November's election will be the oldest president ever. And age is a big risk factor when it comes to the health consequences of COVID and a lot of other things. And during Wednesday's debate, both Veep candidates were asked if they've spoken with their bosses about taking over if needed. And to be honest, both candidates gave us a non-answer answer. Well, Susan, uh, thank you. Although I would like to go back. So let me tell you, first of all, um, the day I got the call from, from Joe Biden, while we may not know whether those candidates have had the talk, one thing is clear. People are thinking about it and taking the role of Veep a little more seriously these days. So what happens now? This health scare has added some serious uncertainty to an election that's only 25 days away. And COVID-19 is having a major effect on how Trump and Biden make their final pitch to the American people. Right now, it's still unclear whether the next presidential debate set for this upcoming week will be happening after the Commission on Presidential Debates said, hey, let's make it virtual for health reasons. But the president's team says he won't participate if the debate is virtual. And Team Biden now says it's planning to skip too. Apparently, everyone's getting tired of Zoom. Speaking of the election, more than 6 million people have already voted ahead of November 3rd way more than the number of people who'd voted at this point back in 2016. According to election data experts, we can chalk those numbers up to expanded mail-in voting in almost all states due to COVID-19, and people just being fired up about casting their ballots. 
The data we have so far has some experts predicting record-breaking turnout for this election. Think the highest voter participation rate in about a century. You know, that whole battle between William Taft and William Jennings Bryan. But back here in 2020, not everything has gone smoothly. Earlier this summer, there was a lot of confusion about how mail-in voting was actually going to work, especially in states that didn't already have a system in place for handling thousands of ballots. That confusion continued to grow after President Trump claimed mail-in voting could lead to fraud. But experts and even the president's own FBI director say that voter fraud in the United States is rare. Here was FBI Director Christopher Wray on Capitol Hill last month. Now, we uh, have not seen historically uh, any kind of coordinated national voter fraud effort uh, in a major election, uh, whether it's by mail or, or otherwise. So fraud may not be an issue, but that doesn't mean things can't go wrong along the way. Like in Brooklyn, New York, where city election officials are scrambling after nearly 100,000 people received ballots with the wrong return envelopes, or ballots that were addressed to someone else. In North Carolina, thousands of ballots were filled out, but were missing certain bits of key information like signatures or return addresses that would guarantee they get counted. Whether a federal judge will allow North Carolina voters to correct their ballots before election day is still TBD and similar cases could keep popping up around the country. So you can imagine that some of these mishaps have voters losing confidence in their state's mail-in system, and that they'd rather vote or drop off their ballot in person. Like in Illinois, where this voter spoke to her local station. With all the confusion about the mail and the post office, and, and if you filled it out correctly and all those things, I really didn't want to deal with that while other voters, including 102-year-old B. Lumpkin, are still masking up and heading out to their mailboxes. Lumpkin has actually never missed an election since she's been eligible to vote, even if it means putting on a hazmat hood and gloves. Talk about goals. So if you're planning to mail in your ballot, we want to walk you through a few things to double and even triple check to make sure your ballot gets counted, and so you can make people like B. proud. All right, here we go. Hi, Tappan. How are you? I'm good, Justine. How are you today? That's Tappan Vickery. She's the Director of Voter Engagement at Headcount, a nonpartisan organization that promotes voter registration. So I have my mail-in ballot with me right now, and I'm in the state of New York. But for our listeners and for myself, I'd love for you to walk me through how to fill this out. The first thing before you open it, I'm going to make sure that you have a blue or black pen with you. So open your ballot carefully. On the inside, there'll be some return envelopes. You don't want to rip any of that. So make sure that when you open it, you open it without ripping anything internally. Make sure that your name matches and that your address matches. Okay. Yes. Full name, address matches, zip code and everything. So all good. Great. <laughs> If for some reason it doesn't, you should always be in touch with your local election office and make sure that you get one that does before you vote. Okay, and here's my ballot. It's a long one, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On your ballot, there'll be a picture of how they want you to fill in the bubbles. So if identify that picture. It should be towards the top. Make sure that you're filling in your bubbles as it shows on the ballot. You don't want to make a check mark or an X mark. You want to actually fill in the bubbles properly. 
Okay, here we go. I've I've got it and I see all the different elections that are going on and starting with the presidency at the top. How awesome that you get to vote in so many races. So some people might ask, do I have to vote for everything? And the truth is there's no requirement that you vote for every race. You can select what you want to vote for. I recommend that you do. So if you don't haven't done your homework yet, please do check out your local races because that's one of the places where your vote can have the biggest impact. So vote all the way down your ballot. All right, so go ahead and fill in your ovals as you would like, and let me know when you're ready to go to the next step. All right, so I've, I've filled in the bubbles very meticulously. Okay, so you are done. So what you need to do now is you're gonna fold it up and you're gonna put it into the security envelope. It looks like a smaller return envelope that came with it. Yes. And on the back, there'll be a place for you to sign and date. Okay, so the signature thing definitely worries me. It's the one that matches your driver's license, right? Actually, it's gonna match your voter registration record. Oh. So this is where it gets tricky. Oh goodness. If you registered to vote online with your driver's license, then that's what it should match. The bigger question is gonna be if people have changed their names or kind of over a long period of time, your signature changes. Okay, all right, <laughs> so no pressure, I've signed. I think, it's, it, I think it's very, very similar. So are you going to use a Dropbox or are you gonna put it in the mail? I actually, I'm not sure which way. So I feel like before I was going to just put it in the mailbox because I have, you know, a very convenient mailbox right on the corner of my street, never had issues, but I'm also really close to a post office. And then also the Dropbox, I don't know where my nearest one is. Is there, do you know, what can I do if I don't know where it is, but I want to do it that way? Well, in New York, you can go to your county election website and they're going to give you a map or a list with all the drop boxes that are available to you. In other states, it may be a local election site. So you need to be aware of who manages elections in your states. And I don't know if you actually have a stamp. You know, postal disenfranchisement comes in two forms. The first is that the postal service has been underfunded and we've been undermined our confidence that they can actually deliver the mail. And the second is that not all states pay for postage. I totally don't have a stamp. I would have assumed that this was like government mail, so I would just send it as normal. And that's terrifying. Yeah, mine definitely says place stamp here. Aren't you glad you called me? <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> so if you use a ballot drop box, you're fine to do it without postage. It's just so nice to have like a clear picture of what the steps are and how to complete it. And so what, what would you say, what are the best resources that you've seen that kind of cover these issues? So we have at Headcount, we launched a new page, sort of a new campaign, our Get Out the Vote campaign for the year is uh, Make Your Vote Count. And it's at headcount.org slash make your vote count. And from there you can select your state and we walk through all of the requirements like the signature match, where which envelope to use, if you need to apply a stamp, all of those things are listed and the links to track your ballot as well, which is cool because you can track your ballot like a pizza. Um, or a lift and make sure that it has been delivered. The other great way to look at those is to go to your local election office. There's a lot that is changing in real time, including ballot um, drop box locations and polling places as we get closer to election day. What do you think are the most important things that people should know as they go and plan out how they're gonna vote this year? 
Oh, well, that's a big one. Um, I think that if you feel safe voting in public, that you should take advantage of early voting. If you want to vote by mail, either because for whatever your personal reason is to do that, you should totally do it, but pay very close attention to all of the details. Ballots are rejected at a vast, vastly higher rate by people who are voting by mail for the first time and because they don't follow instructions. So take your time, get somebody to double check your ballot if you can, use a real pen, sign where you're supposed to, make sure you send in it with your stamp with enough time. This is amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for clarifying so many things. I think this has been really helpful and you know, I'm looking forward to voting. I'm looking forward to putting this in a ballot box or putting a stamp on it, finding a stamp <laughs> or buying a stamp, putting it on it and then mailing it in. This was fun. Thank you guys. For all your 2020 questions, head on over to theskim.com slash 2020. Some people think electric cars are weird, but when you think about it, it used to seem pretty weird to get your news from a little voice coming out of your headphones too. Like podcasts, electric cars are normal now. With longer ranges, you can take them just about anywhere. And with lots of charging stations and faster charging times, it's easy to charge up on the way. Plus, with lots of affordable models and less routine maintenance, electric cars may actually save you money. Find out more about how electric cars are normal at normalnow.com. To understand the job market, it helps to have a guide. I am Valerie Wilson, uh, Director of the Program on Race, Ethnicity, and the Economy at the Economic Policy Institute in Washington, D.C. A few days ago, we saw the stat that around half of the jobs lost because of COVID-19 are returning. A lot of companies that temporarily laid off workers earlier this year have rehired them, which is great news. And this first half of the recovery has occurred pretty fast, potentially even record fast. That's the glass half full take. However, the pace of job growth has slowed significantly over the last several months. Uh, we went from adding 4.8 million jobs in June uh, down to just 661,000 in September. So that halfway back is at a slowing pace. Meaning the easy part is probably over. One of the OG ways to measure the economy is the unemployment rate. Unemployment surged to almost 15% in April. Now it's back under 8%. But Wilson says that statistic is becoming less relevant as the COVID recovery continues. You have to be actively looking for a job to be counted as unemployed. You know, when the labor market is depressed and there aren't a lot of job openings that people become discouraged and stop looking. So the unemployment rate may not be the most accurate indicator of the labor market. Instead, Wilson says we should look at the employment to population ratio, which measures the number of Americans working against the number of working age Americans. And she says that number, unlike the regular unemployment rate, takes into account a headline you might have seen last week, that between August and September, nearly 1.1 million people dropped out of the workforce. Approximately 80% of them were women, something economists attribute to women bearing the main responsibility for taking care of children. Wilson also says that even though some jobs are coming back, the quality of jobs matters too. Jobs are not returning one for one. 
People aren't necessarily going back to the same job that they lost. So there is a lot of reshuffling going on. So right when the pandemic hit, um, I lost my job along with the rest of my team. Julie Schechter is a skimmer who lost her job. She worked in the catering and events industry in NYC earlier this spring. Immediately, we were, you know, completely out of business just due to lack of travel. People were working from home. Julie wrote in a few months ago saying the job search was hard. And when we caught up with her this week, she'd only just received some good news. You know, it took me about six and a half months of job hunting and looking around. Um, So I did receive a job offer last week. It's nothing full-time, no benefits, um, but just something, you know, to get me out of the house and, you know, interacting. I'm just working at a fitness studio for now. On paper, Julie is part of that statistic this whole story is about. You know, half of the jobs lost to COVID are back, and Julie is technically no longer unemployed. But going from a full-time job to something part-time and without benefits... Well, this creates both short-term and long-term financial stressors for people and the economy. And for people still looking for work, there's stiff competition. When employers know that there are multiple people competing for a single opening, they have less incentive to offer higher wages or better benefits to attract employees. So yes, it's absolutely going to have a negative impact as well. Another thing that could slow down the recovery is the end of government stimulus programs. A few of these programs are still going, like putting a pause on requiring to pay back federal student loans through the end of the year. But a lot of other stimulus programs have expired. Back in the spring, Paycheck Protection Program loans encouraged small businesses to keep employees on the payroll. But that program ended in August. Financial support for the airline industry also ended at the end of September, leading American Airlines and United to furlough more than 30,000 employees in recent days. And remember those $1,200 stimulus checks back in the spring? A survey found that only about 40% of the money sent out was actually used to make a purchase. The rest was put into savings or used to pay off debt. Now, those are really great things to do when you have extra cash, but it doesn't really boost the economy. The better way to do that, Wilson says, was with a $600 weekly increase in federal unemployment insurance. A check that you are getting on a weekly basis allows you to continue and sustain uh, that level of consumption, often for things that are just necessary. Food, paying your rent, you know, regular expenses that people encounter uh, every month that are so crucial to sustaining our economy. When you're spending money, someone else is employed, they earn an income, they spend that money, someone else gets employed, it just keeps going. You heard that right. Unemployment dollars keep other people employed. But even that unemployment boost ended in July. And Democrats and Republicans can't agree on whether to bring it back. And that's reportedly leading to some concern that consumer spending on everything from new clothes to takeout could dry up. And not just temporarily. This cutback in spending happens when people lose their jobs or have their hours cut. But it also happens when lockdowns mean bans on things you used to spend your money on, like going on vacation or to a concert or a dive bar on the east side. Literally, where are you at? A lot of malls are pretty empty these days too. And so are airports, theme parks, and event halls. 
And unless that pattern changes, there's going to be more economic damage to come. The company Zenreach studies consumer traffic patterns. Literally, footsteps in places like retail stores or restaurants. Back in June, the company saw that more people were getting out. That led them to predict we'd maybe be close to returning to normal traffic by now. But instead, since July, the company hasn't seen any meaningful increases in foot traffic. Turns out, people aren't racing back to stores. And this trend is so steady now that Zenreach's data scientists say they can't even predict when things might get back to normal. When predictors don't want to predict, you know you're in trouble. Another recent survey found one in 20 small businesses in the U.S. could close if the government doesn't pass another economic stimulus bill soon. Restaurants in a number of states already can't fill up their dining rooms, meaning profit margins are tiny, if they exist at all. And throw in the cost of running propane heaters all winter to offer outdoor seating, and just because a business has lasted this long, doesn't mean they're out of the woods yet. Our economist guide, Valerie Wilson, says, while we've already seen a lot of pain in certain sectors of the economy, like hospitality and travel, other industries still haven't reached their low. Like commercial real estate, since how many businesses need all that old office space? And that's bad news not just for the landlords, but for all the people who keep buildings running. And similar patterns could play out beyond the business world. Local governments are shrinking their budgets because of revenue shortfalls. And those cuts have led to public sector layoffs, too. In the last month, between August and September, when we should see employment rising in that sector, because that's when school uh, started again, we've actually seen employment in, in local K-12 education decline over 230,000. So there's definitely a shortfall in that uh, sector uh, because of the hit that's being uh, taken by a lot of local and state budgets because of the decline tax revenue. So what's the skim? On paper, half of the jobs lost because of COVID-19 this spring are back. It's true, job growth has improved a lot since April, especially in higher wage professions like finance. But now, job growth is slowing down, especially in lower wage industries. And as we head into the fall and winter and businesses struggle to stay afloat as the pandemic drags on, recovering the other half of jobs won't be easy. We're talking potentially years, not months, before we're back to normal. The fact that the economic stimulus provisions expired at the end of July, specifically the additional $600 in unemployment insurance, the longer that it takes to reinstate those measures that were taken in the early months of the recession to sort of counteract the decline in economic activity, that's going to cause the recession to drag on even longer. Over at theskim.com slash money, we just published our DIY stimulus guide. So you don't have to wait for Congress to act to take your financial future into your own hands. We've got the info on how to take advantage of special student loan programs, get help paying the bills, or find a new side hustle. Check out all of that and more at theskim.com slash money. Before we go, we want to talk about the surprise cameo during Wednesday night's vice presidential debate. VP Mike Pence and Senator Kamala Harris were sticking to serious talking points when... A fly landed on Pence's head. 
and stayed there for a full two minutes before buzzing away and prompting a lot of short-lived jokes and hundreds of parody Twitter accounts. Salvatore Attardo is a linguistics professor at Texas A&M University and a leading expert on humor. So what made The Fly so funny for so many viewers? It doesn't fit the expectation. As in all the seriousness of a televised debate, the heavy topics, the formal body language, all the hair and makeup prep. This is curated, the position of each of his hairs is curated very carefully, okay? And then you get the fly. And a miniature cameo derails the whole mood. It's also funny because of what we think about when we think of flies. I mean, flies land on manure. It's, you know, they're attracted to it. Even so, flies don't discriminate. Back in 2016, a fly landed on Hillary Clinton during a debate and on Donald Trump at a rally. Still, this was probably the fly's biggest role yet, but it could use some pointers. Uh, I thought that the fly was a little bit static. It, it should have moved around and sort of flown in front of him and, and because then he would have swatted it and that would have been uh, definitely hilarious. Well, you have to start somewhere. Better luck next time, fly. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr and Luke Vargas, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. And I'm your host, Justine Davey. We'll be back in your feed again next week. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. 